uh, our time together on Sunday mornings is much more than just a time of fellowship. It really is encouraging to me to see that the worship of God through song and scripture is important to you. That each of you set aside and guard this time for the Lord and the gathering together with fellow brothers and sisters in Christ is a form of submission to the Lord. A form of saying, yes, Lord, to his word. And this idea of living our lives in submission to the will and design and intent of God as ambassadors of his kingdom on earth is not only what we saw Peter address in our text last week, but he continues this line of thinking in today's text. So just a a quick review, if you will. Last week, the message was titled, Heavenly Civics. Because we explored Peter's emphasis that being citizens of the kingdom of God has ramifications for our earthly lives here. And we asked the question, how do we live as kingdom citizens in exile in a sinful world? If you've looked at your notes, you'll notice that today's message is also entitled Heavenly Civics Part 2. Now don't worry, this is not part two of the same text as last week. But what we're going to see is that today's text is a continuation of the theme that we looked at last week, just with new examples. We begin to see a theme of submission as as a defining characteristic of how God's people are to relate to the world develop here in the middle of chapter 2 and continue into the beginning of chapter 3. We talked last week about how there are personal ramifications for kingdom citizenship in a sinful world. Because since we have been set free from sin, we are to use that freedom to submit our personal conduct to God's will and His example. We also saw that there were social ramifications for kingdom citizenship in a sinful world. Since God is sovereign, no one has any authority except what is granted to them by God, and God's people are to seek to live in harmony and submission to all human governing authorities with a good heart attitude, being the key word there, with respect and honor whenever and wherever possible. That is to be our default position. We are to honor and serve and submit to human governments whenever and as often as possible, biblically. But there is a clear distinction between respect or honor and worship. We honor and submit to human government, but we worship only God. This characteristic of submission is often seen as weakness in today's culture, but that is not the case. We're not called to be passive or weak. Rather, we honor man because he is made and created in the image of God, whether that person is a believer or not. We often point to this as a reason why we as Christ followers must oppose abortion since all life, all human life is made in the image of God. But we have a tendency to not apply this same honor and respect to grown human beings who are also made in God's image. Second, we honor the emperor or ruler because he too is made in God's image and because he is in that position as part of God's plan. And third, we submit to the governing authorities for the Lord's sake, so that our enemies have nothing legitimate with which to accuse us. And also so that our example will serve either as a witness to them or a testimony against them in the end. This submission to suffering in this life for God's people is not our duty, but a calling. It is our calling. And in our text this morning, we're going to see 
Peter continued to flesh out this idea of how we as followers of Christ are to live in submission to others by outlining three more areas of where there are ramifications that our citizenship in heaven has on our earthly relationships. So I'm going to ask you again this morning, we're going to continue this, uh, this, this practice of standing in honor of God's Word. I'll ask you that you stand as we read from 1 Peter chapter 2. So if you will, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 18. And we're going to read through chapter 3, verse 7 this morning. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives." When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for today. We thank you for the sunshine. We thank you for uh, this beautiful summer day. Lord, we thank you for the time and the freedom that you've allowed Um, that you've granted us to be able to gather together here in your name, around your word. Thank you for the access that we have to your word. I pray that you would help us to not take that for granted. And this morning, that you would open our hearts and our minds to to speak to us through your word. Lord, that these would be your words and not mine. That the glory and the honor would be all yours. Lord, I thank you again for the, the privilege to stand here and discuss your word and, and exegete and exposit your word. Lord, I pray as we, as we come to it this morning, as we dive into this message that Peter addressed to the church in his day, Lord, I pray that, Lord, again, that you would, that you would open our hearts and minds, that we would not just hear it, but that we would understand it and that you would convict our hearts to apply it, that we would leave here different than we walked in that we would leave here looking more like you, that we would leave here encouraged to follow in your example. And it's in Christ that we pray. Amen. All right, you may be seated. 
At the beginning of today's text, Peter shifts from how Christ followers are to relate to earthly rulers from the government, like we looked at last week, to how servants are to relate to their masters. Now, it's tempting in our context. Some of your Bibles may translate that term servant as slave. And so it's tempting in our context to dismiss this as not being applicable to us, since we do not see ourselves as servants of any human master in that way. And while that may be true in some sense as far as our context goes, when we grasp Peter's point here, we see that heavenly citizenship has for us today vocational ramifications. Vocational ramifications. Look quickly at 1 Peter chapter 2, the, the first three verses of today's passage, verses 18 through 20. He says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. It's important to note here that Peter neither condemns nor condones slavery. That's not his point. That's not the point he's making. This idea here, this servant that he's talking about, is a uh, typically would have been a household servant. In many ways, what would have been a servant in that society would be a vocation in today's society. That's, his point is not necessarily talking about slavery. His intention is not to attack or defend the morality of the institution, but to encourage Christ followers who found themselves in these situations to be Christ-like in their relationship to their masters. He's talking to the believer in this situation. While we may not be forced, uh, we may not find ourselves in a forced servitude type position, Nevertheless, the vast majority of us in this room voluntarily submit to an earthly master in our jobs, our vocations. We have a boss who tells us what to do and when to do it and expects us to do it. There are rewards for a job well done and consequences for disobedience or laziness. Notice also that Peter's focus here is on you and your actions and your heart attitude. This is key here because this is often where we struggle. This is often where we get it wrong. We tend to focus on others and what they do to us, but Peter doesn't even acknowledge that. Peter's, uh, Peter here addresses the Christ follower, the member of the church. He's talking about you and your heart attitude, me and my heart attitude. He says, servants who are kingdom citizens are to submit to their earthly masters in a respectful way. Not spiteful or with an eye roll, not begrudgingly, not to their face and then all the while talking about them behind their back. He says, with all respect, both to the just and to the unjust. And he comes out and includes the unjust master specifically. So he's talking also about the, both to the believer and to the unbeliever, that person that treats you unjustly, the person who treats you poorly in your position. You're supposed to respond to them both with equal respect and honor. This is the truly countercultural part here. Peter's point is to check your own heart. A servant's response to his master 
master is not conditional on the way in which the master treats the servant. That's the countercultural part. In much the same way, we could say employees today, as kingdom citizens, show respect to your employer with a good attitude, whether he or she treats you fairly or not. Regardless of how they treat you, this is how you are to respond. We tend to say, well, my, I responded this way because this is what they did to me. We tend to try to shift the blame onto them, and Peter doesn't even leave room for that here. No, 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 we're not talking about them. It doesn't matter what they did. Nowhere in here does he talk about there being any conditions on your response or your heart attitude. Other people's actions do not give us a license to sin in return. He addresses them specifically and only. How countercultural is that? The world says you must be respected before you give respect. Your respect, my respect has to be earned. My honor has to be earned. Jesus says, not, not my people. Show respect to whom respect is owed, period. Does this mean we will be treated unjustly or persecuted or endure suffering? Absolutely. Just as Jesus promised that we would. Peter reminds his audience that it is a gracious thing to endure suffering for doing what is right, for doing good. And again, we remember that Peter walked with Jesus. Peter listened to Jesus. And so many of the things that we see Peter teaching here are things that Jesus also said. If you look at the gospel specifically, we see some major parallels between Peter's teaching and what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount. I've referenced Matthew chapter 5 every week just about so far through this series, and the same is true today. Look at Matthew chapter 5, verses 11 and 12. Jesus said, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus says we are to rejoice when we suffer wrongly for doing what is right. To rejoice when we're persecuted for righteousness' sake. He reminds his hearers that their reward will be great in heaven. And that they are keeping good company for other men of God have been treated the same way. And who would have been in the audience there listening to Jesus teach this? Peter. He would have heard this from Jesus firsthand. Why should we rejoice? And how is suffering a gracious thing? How, I, how, we don't, our minds don't want to comprehend that. So I'm going to ask you to follow me here as we go. As we discussed last week with our personal conduct and our submission to the government, the same purpose in that submission applies in the relationship here between servant and master. We are to submit in these scenarios so that it is our commitment to Christ that makes us stand out. So that our enemies have nothing else bad to say about us except our faith. If they're going to persecute us, let it be because of our faith, not because of anything wrong we actually did. And in this sense... Persecution or suffering is a painful source of joy because it is evidence of genuine faith. Persecution in this sense, being persecuted for righteousness sake, is evidence of genuine faith. It's evidence that there is fruit in your life that other people see. 
And so that doesn't mean it's not painful, that doesn't mean it's pleasant, that doesn't mean it's fun, but as Christ followers, we can find joy in those moments because in those moments, we can also find assurance of our salvation, assurance of fruit in our lives, of genuine faith. Notice, too, that there is nothing inherently redemptive or positive about suffering or sorrow in and of themselves. Not all suffering is gracious. Not all suffering is a source of joy. Only when we are striving to live peaceably with all, only when we are striving to live righteously, only when we are striving to be like Christ, but endure sorrow or suffer unjustly for His sake or for doing so, that is suffering in which we can find encouragement. That is suffering in which we can find joy. A lot of times, if what, what Peter is saying here is if you suffer for something you legitimately did wrong, that's your own fault. There's, there's, there's no inherent good, goodness, there's no inherent value in that, in getting what you deserve. Peter emphasizes here being mindful of Christ and suffering unjustly. And Jesus in his teaching pointing to the cause of suffering that brings joy as being on my account and being reviled falsely. These are key words, key phrases here. It's not just being reviled, it's being reviled falsely. It's not just being persecuted, it's being persecuted for being a Christ follower. It's not just suffering, it's suffering while being mindful of Christ or suffering unjustly. And Peter spells that out in verse 20. He says, if you, are, if you are punished or persecuted for something you did wrong, what credit to you is that? If you get a ticket for speeding, you deserved it. That is deserved suffering. It should hurt, and it's your own fault. If you get fired for not doing your job, you deserved it. If your boss docks your pay because you broke a piece of equipment, you deserved it. If your boss passed you over for a raise because you are always late to work and you are an unreliable employee, you deserve to be passed over. If people persecute you because you have a bad attitude and nobody wants to be around you, that's your own fault. There is no, nothing inherently good about that persecution. Yes, it's painful. Yes, it hurts. Yes, it's not fun. But you brought that on yourself. But if you are reprimanded or punished for doing the right thing, if you're passed over for a promotion because you would not do something unethical, if you are mocked by coworkers because you let the truth of God's word govern your life and how you respond, then blessed are you. Those things are painful in the moment, yes, but be, take, encur- take encouragement, be encouraged that your faith is evident. That's why those things are happening to you. Peter is not in any way justifying those who inflict suffering or injustice on others. He's encouraging those facing injustice for taking a stand for Christ to respond in a Christ-like manner in all, with all respect. Our response to anyone in authority then is not based on or conditional to how they act toward us. Jesus sums much of this up in what has been dubbed the golden rule, and it has been so for good reason. It pretty well sums up how we are to respond to all of our earthly relationships. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 12, Jesus says, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. You are responsible for your actions. 
Notice here, Jesus doesn't say treat other people the way they treat you or treat other people the way you expect them to treat you. He says treat other people the way you want the treat other people the way you want to be treated, regardless of whether they actually follow through on their end or not. Regardless of whether they respond justly, regardless of whether they respond righteously, regardless of whether they respond fairly, that doesn't have any bearing on what you are to do and how you are to live. You are responsible for your actions, and your actions are not conditional upon how other people respond to or treat, to, or, or treat you. Your actions are in response to the one who accomplished righteousness for you, who satisfied justice for you, and who himself walked this earth as an example for you. You say, well, this is hard. That's uncomfortable. I don't like this. And that's true. I get it. But being a kingdom citizen in a sinful world also has ramifications for your comfort. I understand that it's uncomfortable. It is uncomfortable. That is, that's part of it. Suffering is not fun. But look at what Peter says in verses 21 to 25. Chapter 2, verses 21 through 25. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, Neither was deceit found in his mouth. But when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Peter says, if you are a kingdom citizen, if you are a Christ follower, then this submission to authority, this respectful demeanor, this character of honesty and integrity, and the suffering and sorrow that will accompany it, if done for the Lord's sake, is not just your duty, it's your calling. To this you have been called, he says. And we, th we throw around this term, be Christ-like, without truly grasping what that really means. What does it mean to be Christ-like? Literally, the logic Peter is trying to point out here is, here's how you live as a kingdom citizen in a sinful world because this is how Jesus lived. How you respond in these situations, this is not just something Peter's making up. He's saying, you respond this way because this is how Jesus responded. This is how we live in these earthly relationships because this is the example that Jesus set for us. These are not some arbitrary rules he just came up with. This is the example that Christ lived out. You could literally summarize all of chapter 2 here by saying, be like Christ. But Peter doesn't do that. He walks his audience through it. He says, Jesus committed no sin. He was holy in his personal conduct. True? Yes, he was. Did he submit to the governing authorities? Absolutely. He told the people to pay to Caesar what is Caesar's. He did not resist his unlawful arrest in the garden. He did not resist or protest his unjust trial. When the Son of God himself was mocked and spat upon, he did not return those insults. 
He did not cry out for his own personal justice. When he was beaten and tortured and had his beard pulled out and humiliated and sentenced to death, despite there being no evidence of any wrongdoing on his part, despite it being acknowledged by Pilate that, there was, that this man had done nothing wrong, still he trusted God and submitted to Pilate. Never once did he lash out in anger or vengeance or demand justice for himself. In fact, take that a step further. The injustice afflicted upon him was actually the punishment you and I deserved. And he knew it, and still he was submissive to mankind because he was ultimately submissive to God's will. He submitted to Pilate because that was God's will for him. Not because Pilate was greater than Jesus. Not because Jesus was inferior to man, but because Jesus voluntarily submitted to God's will, and that meant being under the authorities that God had put in place at that point in time. And we see why that was. We have the benefit of hindsight, of being able to look back at the Bible and see, the, see God's purpose in that moment. He bore our sins in His body on that cross so that we might have His righteousness when we stand before God, if we repent and believe. By His wounds, by His suffering, we can be healed of our sin. This is the gospel summed up here in verses 24 and 25. He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. For you are straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. That is the gospel. Boiled down in a nutshell right there. This is what it means to be a Christ follower. We can look back and we can see God's hand in all of this. What we can't see is God's hand. We can't always see the result of God's work in our lives today. When we are called to submit to the governing authorities, when we are called to submit to masters, when we are called to be submissive in our personal conduct to God's standard, we can't always see how God is working that out. We can't always see the ramifications down the road. All we can see, the question before us is, am I going to be like Christ or am I going to lash out the way I want to? Now here, Peter references Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah 53. 5 through 6, uh, the prophet Isaiah says, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And now, those of us who have repented and placed our faith in Him no longer wander in sin, but have returned to the shepherd, the good shepherd, as Jesus describes Himself in John 10, 11. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down His life for the sheep. This is the gospel boiled down right here in verses 24 and 25 of 1 Peter chapter 2. And if we are kingdom citizens, citizens, then this is our story, right? This is, this is us. He took my sin to the cross so that I might die to sin in this life and follow Him. 
If I follow him, that means not just acquiring knowledge about him, but acting like him and living like him and being treated like him. You see, Jesus also tells his followers in John 15, verse 18, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So rejoice and be glad when you suffer unjustly for the Lord's sake, because it means you look like Him. When you're tempted to think, this isn't fair, why would God let this happen to me? Remember that you will never face greater injustice than Jesus did. And all he's asking you to do is follow his lead. We're not called to seek comfort in this life, nor should we expect any greater degree of comfort and acceptance in a sinful world than our heavenly master received. And that's okay. Think how the apostles responded after being arrested for preaching the gospel in Acts chapter 5. Verse 41 says they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name, the name of Jesus. May we respond to the discomfort and the persecution we will inevitably face in this life if we follow him in the same way that they did. This is encouragement that Peter is offering his audience here. This is not, oh, this is not woe is me. There's suffering and sorrow in life. Peter is saying, listen, those things are going to come, but remember, those things are coming to you. They're going to come to you if you look like Christ. So take comfort in those things. Remember, these things are light and momentary. This life is temporary. We are exiles in this life. And that suffering and that sorrow that we experience because of our faith is evidence that we have genuine faith. If the world loves you and you fit right in, then there is no assurance of salvation. Because what that means is that nobody sees Christ in you. If the world sees Christ in you, Jesus says they will hate you. Take comfort in that suffering. Knowing that, again, this world is not our home. It's okay to be uncomfortable here in this life because we have an inheritance promised to us for eternity. But Peter's not quite done yet. There's one earthly relationship that he hasn't addressed yet, and that is the family. So he moves from here into talking about the relationship within the family, specifically between husband and wife. Because being a kingdom citizen in a sinful world has ramifications for family life as well. Ramifications for family life as well. Look at chapter 3. Verses 1 through 7. He says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children 
if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Now his word here is first, he addresses wives first. And here especially, it's important to remember that we are ultimately to submit to God's word. So we must be willing to set aside cultural movements and deal with the biblical text and submit to what God's word says. We're not going to read it this morning for the sake of time, but this is not unique to Peter. It's echoed by the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 5. I would encourage you to go back if you want to jot that down in your notes for future reference. You'll see that Peter and Paul, as they often do, as we would expect, often their teachings match up. You can put them side by side and see that they are teaching the same truth. And we would expect that. Again, points to the inerrancy of Scripture. But like we have seen in every other example given... The right response to a Christ follower is not dependent or conditional on the response or the reaction or the actions of others. He says, wives are to be submissive to their husbands as the leader of the household. And he even has in mind here women who are married to pagan men, to men who are unbelievers. And he spells that out to leave room for no loopholes. This submission to his leadership we see in verse 2 is a witness or serves as a witness to the gospel. That even if he won't listen to your words, may he be won by your conduct. Your submission, wives, to your husband, not to any man, but to your husband, your submission to your husband serves as a picture of the gospel. He does not in any any way here say that wives are inferior, that women are inferior, just as submission does not equate to inferiority in any of the other examples given. Again, we look to the example of Christ. Though He was equal with the Father, being Himself fully God, He submitted, placed Himself in submission to the will of the Father in coming to the earth in human form. In in studying for this and how to explain this well and clearly, I came across... um, R.C. Sproul, you've heard uh, him referenced uh, pretty frequently here. Uh, R.C. Sproul refers to this helpfully, so I'm going to borrow his analogy here. He refers to this as a division of labor. In many ways, that helps us put this teaching in perspective. Paul uses the phrase, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, when describing submission of wives to their husbands in Ephesians chapter 5, the passage I referenced earlier. The idea is that a wife is to submit to her husband's leadership because in doing so, she is also submitting to Christ's design, Christ's design for marriage. Again, we see that our allegiance ultimately is to God. In verses 3 and 4 here, Peter is not saying that it is wrong for a wife to look nice, but that should not be her focus. There should be modesty in dress Modesty in appearance, because real beauty is on the inside. External beauty is fleeting. Internal beauty is what he describes as imperishable beauty. Now notice also that word imperishable. The imperishable inner beauty of a wife when she submits to her husband is the same way, the same term that Peter uses to describe our our heavenly inheritance in verse in chapter 1, verse 4, 
He goes on to say that this precious, imperishable beauty is a gentle and quiet spirit. Now, he is not here saying that women should just be quiet, or that their opinions should not be stated, or that they should just somehow, that they should just be in the background. Nor does it mean that a woman should endure abuse. That is not at all the case. That's to miss the point. Don't miss this here, wives. Why does he find, why does God find a gentle and quiet spirit so precious? Because those terms, that description is the same description used for Christ. Look at, in Matthew chapter 11, verse 29, look at how Jesus describes himself. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Peter's call here for wives to have a gentle and quiet spirit is not a sign or a symbol of inferiority or anything along those lines. It's, it's a calling to be like Christ. Wives, the call for you is the same for each one of us in every other example. It's to be like Jesus. Then he reminds wives to look back through the, through the Bible and remember the examples of the great women of the Bible. And you'll see the same description is true of them as well. Look at Mary. Look at Ruth. Look at Esther. Look at Sarah. Look at these examples and you'll see that in many ways they exemplified these traits, these characteristics. He then turns to husbands. Again here, Peter echoes the teachings of Paul who says in Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Peter's reference to the weaker vessel here is specifically one of physical strength. Again, not of inferiority or value. The truth is men are typically physically stronger than their wives. Husbands are typically physically stronger than their wives. That is the general case. So that's the situation that Peter is addressing. Husbands are to love and honor and cherish their wives and to take that leadership role seriously. Again, think of Jesus' example. He was sacrificial in his love for the church. He gave his life for the church. He was patient with the church. He was faithful even when the church struggled. Husbands, that is a, in many ways, a terrifying responsibility to be entrusted with. We're called to follow Jesus in how we relate to our wives. Now, last week, I explained my wife's tattoo on her forearm. So I guess it's my turn this week to explain mine that I got. All right. Many of you have noticed um, that when, when she got hers, I got mine. I got my wedding ring tattooed and I got a cross tattooed on my finger. And the reason for that is based on Ephesians 5.25. It is a daily reminder of me that my role as her husband is to be like Christ. My role in her husband, as her husband is to love her the same way that Christ loved his church. To be sacrificial, to be patient, to be unselfish, to be willing to lay down my life to be willing to lay down my wants and my desires for her. Because that's what Jesus did for me. 
I'm called to emulate what Christ did for me and how I relate to my wife. And that's not only a reminder to me, but it's a conversation point. Because when people ask, what is that on your finger? I can explain to them both the permanence and the purpose of marriage. The role of the husband in marriage. This whole relationship is designed to be a picture of the gospel. But again, notice that Peter is consistent in our response to all these earthly relationships. Our actions are not conditional upon how other people treat us. And the same is true here. A husband is to love and honor and lead and respect his wife whether she submits to him or not. My leadership in a godly fashion, my love for her as Christ loved the church is not contingent upon anything that she does. That's my role. That's my job. In the same way, a wife is called to submit to her husband as to the Lord, whether he's a godly leader or not. You see, marriage is a picture of the gospel, and we are called to be faithful to our part. The family does not exist solely for our enjoyment or our security or our pride, etc., but it is a tool to mirror Christ to the world. Let me ask you this question. Do you bring God into your family relationships, into your marriage relationship, or does God define it? Do you try to incorporate God in, or do you allow God to define it? As Michelle comes to play and the praise team gets ready to lead us in another time of worship through song, I want you to think for a minute about everything that Peter has been describing here. All the ramifications for being kingdom citizens in a sinful world. Personal, social, vocational, comfort, family. All our earthly relationships. It is true that our allegiance is first and ultimately only to God. We are freed from being enslaved to sin in this world and free to serve as slaves of Christ. And there are instances when, as Peter himself did, we must obey God rather than man. But, is your attitude generally described as one of submission? Submission to God's design with a glad heart attitude? Or are you one who looks for the loopholes? Where is your heart? Do you seek to live peaceably with all? so that the enemy has nothing legitimate to accuse you of? Is the persecution and the suffering and the sorrow that you face in your life, is it unjust? Is it simply because of your faith or is it because of your sin? As kingdom citizens living in a sinful world, our kingdom citizenship has ramifications for every earthly relationship we have. And as you heard me mention before, every good sermon is a one-point sermon, so here is your main point. As a Christ follower, as a kingdom citizen, living in a sinful world, we must strive to maintain an eternal perspective in all our earthly relationships. Our kingdom citizenship has ramifications for every earthly relationship we have. So I'm going to leave you with this. Are you just going through the motions in any one of these areas? Or are you truly living intentionally for the glory of God to be seen in your life? Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for today. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the encouragement that we find here in Peter's letter. We thank you for the perspective that it gives us on suffering and sorrow that we face, for the encouragement to understand that when we are mocked and persecuted, when we do suffer loss or injury, loss of job or struggle or strife in a relationship because we follow you, Lord, that validates our faith. Lord, it means that we look like you. It means that the world sees us the way it saw you. And Lord, may we take joy and comfort in that. And we thank you again for the reminder that our time here is temporary. We are exiles in this world. Lord, help us to intentionally interact in every earthly relationship in such a way as to bring honor and glory to you, to point people to you, not to cry out for vengeance or respect or honor for ourselves, but to be faithful to our calling, to our role, in whatever situation you've placed us. Lord, may we look more and more like you each and every day. May we live out the gospel in the world, in every situation, in every opportunity. Lord, every earthly relationship that we have with every person, with every institution is an opportunity to live a life that displays the gospel. And Lord, may we not be guilty of just going through the motions in those places. Lord, help us to allow your word to define and direct our lives, to govern our lives. May we submit to your word today. May we submit to you and live at peace as far as it depends on us with others so that when we're persecuted, when that suffering and sorrow comes, when the hard times come, it will be because of our faith and not because of our sin. Lord, we love you. Lord, we lift high your name and it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.